Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast that has all of the streaming universe at its fingertips, even if the streaming universe is disappearing before our very eyes. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet and the East River by the Cindy Lou Who to my Grinch, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I'm very merry, Chris. How are you? You're looking merry. I'm feeling merry. Uh, it's a very merry week here because we are reviewing the holiday sensation uh, I assume, of the season, Netflix's hit movie, I assume, uh, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. It comes out on December 23rd, but Diane and I have already seen it in theaters. We're going to talk about the the Netflix theatrical strategy, and we're going to do uh, our first preview review. We are going to tell you what we thought of the movie without spoiling any of the big twists in the mystery. I am so excited for that. As am I. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, the streaming universe, it's, it's being Thanos-snapped out of existence before our very eyes. Uh, there's so much news going on, and it's the end of the year. We should get right to it. Starting with uh, some, someone who literally was Thanos-snapped out of the streaming universe uh, this past week, uh, Saturday Night Live announced hours before their uh, last episode of the year, the Christmas episode, that Cecily Strong is leaving Saturday Night Live after that episode that already aired. She's gone. That's it. What happened? It's such a shame. She's such a talent. Though, the only thing that I do see a silver lining here is that I want more Cecily Strong-led projects. You know, me too, and me too. I, and I feel like she seems like she has such a um, clear point of view as an artist that we might see more like her directing or writing films. Um, I could really see her leading a series. So, you know, I'm excited to see what she does next. Yeah, and honestly, it had not occurred to me that she's really been on the show almost 11 years. And there were some very nice um, little send-off callbacks to her in the episode uh, last weekend, including a picture of her hosting Weekend Update with Colin Jost, which I know factually is an era of that show that existed, but when I failed to recognize it. Yeah, she has done a lot of stuff at SNL over the years. She's really sort of pivoted um, over the years to becoming one of their you know, most reliable sketch members. For SNL, this is rough. They've really lost a lot of talent this year. Yeah, and I think that was uh, really hit home for me in uh, her final sketch, the 10 to 1 sketch, the the Radio Shack goodbye. The, the sketch was a thinly veiled farewell to Cecily under the uh, guise of her last day at Radio Shack. And uh, they, they brought out basically the remaining cast members who had any significant overlap with her in that, because uh, then they sang, because it was one of those SNL moments where they want us to know they're sincere, so they sing a song. It, it was such a small group. The cast is huge right now. Uh, not as big as it has been, but it's still a big cast. But the group of people who are people who are part of, like, the Cecily Strong era of the show, who are still there, you could count on one hand. Uh, and then more of the cast came in, and it was, but they, they clearly made a choice to say, you know, here's Cecily's remaining squad. And it's small. The, the, it is the the real marker of a big generational transition. You know, everybody goes through that phase of my childhood's SNL is over. And I think for, uh, uh, kind of for Gen Z, their childhood's SNL is over. And now they're getting their adulthood's SNL, led by a bunch of interesting people like Bowen Yang. I am a huge Chloe Fineman fan, and I, I died laughing at her Jennifer Coolidge sketch. If you have not seen that, you just Google Jennifer Coolidge Christmas. So, you know, I am sad that Cecily has left, 
But uh, I kind of left, uh, or where we are in the season, mid-season, I'm a little optimistic about the new cast and the fact that, you know, listen, they'll sink or swim by the fact that they're the ones holding the show up now. I do think some of those cast members stayed a little too long and that it is good that they'll be working on new projects and that new folks will get to... Um, use their voice just like as a comedy fan I think it'll be good for the show but as someone who also follows ratings I think SNL is going to take a pretty hard hit yeah and and at a hard time for NBC Universal and of course we're going to talk about Peacock Yeah, they just made the move this season to make uh, SNL exclusive live streaming on Peacock as it airs on NBC. And uh, boy, it will uh, be hard to get people enthused to try something new when you're also telling them all the people you remember and recognize aren't there anymore. Yeah. Tough, tough. But that's not even the only NBC Peacock news we have to cover this week because the uh, big story that came out in Deadline is that Peacock is pivoting in 2023, uh, away from what we, at least, I think Diane and I would consider NBC's bread and butter, which is comedy. Uh, They've Mm. decided, you know what, we launched with a bunch of comedies. All of those comedies have now either been canceled or pawned off to Netflix. And the only comedy that is apparently a hit currently and getting renewed for another season is the Pitch Perfect spinoff, Bumper in Berlin which I saw ads for repeatedly, but still had to Google to understand who or what is a bumper and why is he in Berlin? Yes, I uh, was like, oh, right, they still are greenlighting that. And I was like, oh, wait, no, it's already been made and (laughs) about to uh, get picked up for season two. So um, I'm also behind on my Pitch Perfect Universe news, apparently. Though they did say they're still keeping a third of the slate for comedy. So there'll be some comedies. It just seems like these comedies will be less of the, like, quirky niche comedies that we saw on Peacock previously and more something that they're hoping will have mass appeal like um, Pete Davidson led Bubkiss. So you're going to see things with big stars or existing IP. So maybe some more boring comedies. Everyone's favorite thing, existing IP. Yeah, that's a shame. Though, uh, was there one other? I think that Craig Robinson's show got picked up too. So there's yeah, Killing It is picked up for another season. So again, one-third to two-thirds. That's the breakdown they reported. Uh, and that they're also going to look more heavily... This is... Oh, here's the sentence. This is the sentence in the Deadline article that I sent you with a very worried face emoji. Uh, according to pitch talent reps, NBCU is ready to spend on a show the caliber of House of the Dragon or Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, or Stranger Things, which is the saddest phrase I've ever read. Like, of course you're willing to spend money on House of the Dragon. You don't have it. You, you, you can't just throw money at a dragon until it appears. What kills me is, everyone's already tried that. Why are you saying you still want to try that? Tell, tell me, what is your House of the Dragon? Right? It does seem confusing, especially because they also said that they want their dramas to be inspirational and, um, you know, to leave people with like a heartwarming drama, which sounds to me more like a This Is Us, which was a hit on NBC, than, you know, House of the Dragon, which is many things, but heartwarming it is not. 
No, and even in that part, they did say in this report that they want their dramas not to be too dark or, or you know, uh, gritty. But at the same time, the other thing they're leaning into in this pivot is true crime. Because true crime does great for NBC. It does great for all the networks. Everyone loves true crime. And it's nothing but dark, gritty, tacky stories. Yes, I would say tacky is important there, though, because there is something different tonally and something that is dark but tacky than compared to something that is, you know, just dark and beautifully done. Yes. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of Game of Thrones, just dark and hard to see. Literally poorly lit. Well, you know, this is an interesting moment for Peacock because they're in many, I think in many people's minds, the most struggling major streamer. And so they do kind of have to make a point of saying, look, we are trying new things. Please check us out again because you've probably already written us off. We know, we know. Um, I do hope that some of those comedies that I was really enjoying on Peacock will, uh, you know, find their audiences on Netflix. Yeah, at least, you know, I'm I'm there for Girls 5 Eva. I'm there. Can't wait. Season three, let's go. But you know what is um, uh, not going to a future season? Many, many, many shows at HBO Max. Hmm. Which is, of course, part of the Wabro Disco universe. That's Warner Brothers Discovery, soon to rebrand HBO Max as maybe just Max, and then maybe just uh, nothing. Maybe they'll just wish themselves into non-existence by continuously removing shows from their catalog until there's no catalog left. I understand that this was a business decision, and a lot of this is for tax write-offs, but the Minx news, I, I'm taking it personally. Yeah, that one really hurts. This So this came out in a series of like back-to-back headlines over the last couple of weeks. Uh, uh, just a short sampling of shows that have not just been canceled, many of them we already knew were canceled, but are being removed from the HBO Max catalog, uh, includes Raised by Wolves, which was a Max original, Head of the Class, The Time Traveler's Wife, which was HBO, uh, F-Boy Island, which was actually a successful reality series, a Max original, and uh, as many people have heard Westworld, which was a marquee HBO show for years, admittedly not the most popular one or well-received one by the end of its run, but it was a major HBO tentpole, and it will just not be available on the HBO streaming service anymore. Wild. What a time we're living in. We'll see how those do with licensing agreements, if if someone's able to pick them up. But again, with a show like Minx, it couldn't really fit onto the WD fast, WBD fast service, which fast is their free ad supported TV. Great acronym. Right. <laughs> um, which is more family friendly. I mean, that that's just not going to work for a show like Minx. No, um, and it's not going to work for a show like Westworld. They want to pawn that off on another fast service or another streamer that's just looking to bolster their catalog a bit. Right. Those shows really seem to me to be HBO. There's something about the way that they look and about their content that just doesn't seem like it would necessarily fit on another streamer. Maybe something like Showtime or FX. But, but again, Showtime is really struggling. And FX is just a brand within Hulu at this point. Right, right. Yeah, it would fit with those other brands, but all these prestige brands are suddenly in, in very strange positions where they have an attractive brand, but they don't really have a channel 
whether that's a literal channel or just a distribution channel anymore. They're all folded into something much larger and and much more concerned with the bottom line than they are. Yeah. Um, not to say they're not concerned with the bottom line. These are successful companies, but they are now part of much larger things. Right. And um, knowing that something like, like Minx is, uh, you know, being made by Lionsgate TV, another company that's really struggling, I just i am very concerned. Yeah, Minx is an interesting example because HBO Max had renewed it. They've almost completely finished making season two. And then HBO Max announced this past week that they're not going to host the show anymore at all. They're not just canceling it. Again, they're pulling it from the service. But they're working with Lionsgate to try to shop it somewhere else because, you know, they, they do want to maintain a positive relationship with the talent. But they are at the same time saying there is no home for that show in our future maybe named Max streaming service that unites this all. I think F-Boy Island is another good example of that because it is a successful show for HBO Max, but it's a Max original and it doesn't really fit in any of the forthcoming hubs that will define this new streaming service. Because while the name is still just a rumor, what we know uh, pretty well is that they're structuring it uh, after Disney+, Plus, which organizes everything around its major brand hubs. And that makes a lot of sense for a service like Max, because you've got Discovery, HGTV, HBO, the uh, DC Cinematic Universe. Each one of those is very distinct. And so organizing them to the hubs, I get it. It logically makes sense. Now tell me which hub do you put F-Boy Island in if there is no longer anything called Max Originals? And it just doesn't fit. You're not going to put it in the HBO hub because it's not HBO. And it's probably too edgy for the Discovery hub and, and definitely not going in the Magnolia hub. So at a certain point, even these successful shows, they're, they're making a decision much grander, much larger scale to say, we know what the service is supposed to look like a year from now, and you're just not part of it. But then what happens with something like the Sex Lives of College Girls, which just had a very successful second season and got picked up? That's a Max original. I don't really think it it feels like an HBO Max show. It doesn't feel like an HBO show. Uh, Where will that go on this new streamer? I don't know. I think that's the open question because if they push more of that into the HBO tile while removing some of the things that used to define HBO, like Westworld, you're creating a a situation where you're changing or diluting the HBO brand, even if your intention was to protect it from the F-boy islands of the world, you know? Uh, It's tough because, yeah, I think if The Sex Lies of College Girls is an HBO show now, why isn't Minx? Minx is more HBO than Sex Lives of College Girls, and that's not a a quality judgment. That's just what brand do they remind me of? I agree. I agree with that. Uh, And I I like both shows. I will say um, we've been kind of tracking a narrative about David Zaslov is that he had done a good job of pleasing the talent, of keeping people happy still, and making it a point to do that even when he was giving bad news, unlike some of the other executives. I do wonder how much longer people will have grace for this. You know, these cuts are based on uh, a tax incentive, so it probably won't continue into 2023, but there will still be other cuts. And with something like Los Spookies, okay, so they they gave the creator another, um, they're fast-tracking his new show. So they're still trying to please that talent, but, you know, I think that the creative community is probably pretty fed up with him. 
It's well, that's the open question to me too, because he is making a lot of moves that publicly are throwing people up in arms in some ways. But at the same time, like you just said, he, uh, on the one hand, he canceled Los Spookies. On the other hand, they immediately fast tracked Julio Torres's next show. Uh, and, you know, they're saying, again, we are constructing the next phase of this streaming service, of these networks, and we are uh, more interested in investing in the new projects than keeping old projects on life support that don't necessarily give us the return on investment. And there is also, like, a time-sensitive tax reason they're making these decisions now, but part of it is also they're in this transition period right now. And what happens in a transition period? You let go of a bunch of stuff while planning new stuff. Uh, and that's rough, but I think Zaz is making the calculation that a lot of people in the industry will get over that when they see what's happening next year, which is when this new service is going to kind of come into its own. And I think this new strategy of more licensing is perhaps going to pay dividends for Zaz in the industry. Because I, I, I do have a theory. I have like a, a grand unified theory of Zaz I want to pitch to you. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is basically me cherry-picking all the other theories I've been reading and assembling mm-hmm. them into a Voltron of theories. Uh, but but basically, I just want you to follow me on this for a second. Imagine that in the basement of every major streaming service and media company, there's a, a room with a giant knob that goes from 0 to 10. And at 0, it's the business model of 15 years ago, where you make your TV shows for a TV network, and then you license them in syndication, or you make a movie, and you put it in theaters, and then there's like a pay-one window where it's on HBO, and then you sell DVDs of everything. DVD box sets, DVD movie releases, DVDs everywhere. And then maybe down the road, a Netflix calls you and says, we're this streaming thing, we would pay you some more money for you to re-air that same thing yet again, and we'll give you even more money for it, now a third or fourth or fifth time. So you're just constantly making more money on the back end on a successful project. That is the old business model, so to speak, zero on the scale. And then if you turn the knob all the way the other way, it's a 10, and it's pure streaming. Everything goes day and date to streaming, in theaters, on streaming, same time, on TV, on streaming, same time, maybe just only on streaming, everything streaming. That's the knob that every one of these companies guards like a a precious gem, like their crown jewels, because if you Mm -hmm. mess with the knob, you mess with the business. And, and my theory, this is based on, again, many theories I've, I've heard, is uh, Jason Kylar, former head of Warner Media when it was part of AT&T, uh, you know, launched HBO Max, was the guy they brought in to craft their streaming strategy, again, when they were part of AT&T. And uh, the pandemic hit, and AT&T just gave him the keys to the room with the big knob and said, do whatever you want. You know, all rules are suspended. You can have at it. And so he went in there and he just cranked the knob all the way to 11. And everything started going day and day to HBO Max. And that's how we got Dune and uh, Tenet on HBO Max. And it outraged Hollywood. It outraged these creators. And it also delighted customers and was arguably part of HBO Max's big rise to be one of uh, what many people now say is the one streaming service they would keep if they had to only pick one to to keep because it's got such a great diverse catalog. Well, had such a great diverse catalog. That's in flux. But that that was the Kylar strategy was just crank it all the way up. Uh, What I think we're seeing now and what I think David Zaslav would argue is that's not a financially viable strategy. You need a balance between the two sides if you're going to make money on the back end ever. And so through this, AT&T decides to sell Warner, 
throw out Jason Kylar, and uh, Jason Kylar barricades himself in that room and continues to crank the knob up to 11 until the very last minute. He's launching CNN Plus as David Zaslov is beating down the door saying, Jason, give me the knob. And so now we're going through this extremely awkward correction of turning the knob back to the middle which is, I think, where David Zaslav always wants that knob because he's a guy who makes a ton of money on cable. We, we got a listener mail question a couple weeks back that I have not had time to do the math on, but it, the question was, why did Discovery have the money to buy Warner Brothers? Why is Discovery so big that it can afford to buy the company that makes all of HBO and Warner and all of those major, major uh, studios? And the answer is simply, well, because cable is a profit engine still. And Warner has been in a, a kind of a distressed asset mode for a while. But, but the truth is, because Zaslav knows where the balance is to make the most money, to wring the most money out of the cable market while it still exists. And he knows that if you go full in on streaming, nothing else but streaming, you don't make any money on the back end. And I think what he's trying to show the industry, hoping to show the industry next year, is that he wants you, you, the producer, the writer, the director, the actor, in that project to make back-end residuals again. Yes. I don't want to talk too much about residuals yet because we're going to get to year-end predictions and, you know... Well, who doesn't want to talk about residuals in year-end predictions? <laughs> so exciting. I, I think that that is... A really helpful way to look at it with, you know, the aforementioned knob. But um, the big knob. it's still it's still a, a painful period as we make this adjustment. Oh, absolutely. That does not remove the pain. But I do think it explains because, you know, a lot of the reaction when a favorite show of yours is canceled or even worse, erased from the streaming service where you used to watch it. Your reaction is, what is this man doing? Why is he ruining everything I liked about HBO Max? Well, that's not his intention, obviously, but what is his intention? And I, I think his intention is this very large pivot, both for, again, Warner, which was really leaning hard in an unprofitable direction, and it's a pivot for Discovery, which leans perhaps too far in the legacy media direction, and he knows that that is, you know, gotta shift more towards streaming for the future. He's trying to bring the two extremes together, and, you know, some people might say he's maybe the best suited person to do that. I don't know. I, I'm just saying I think that's what his strategy is. I think you're right. I'm not going to fight you on this, Chris. Ooh, 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 thank you. Well, then, I, in a way, that is my first prediction for what's going to happen in 2023. Uh, but in order to really do a proper prediction segment, I think it's time for us to reintroduce TV Tarot. Yes, it's TV Tarot, the uh, segment we accidentally invented, where we make predictions about what's happening, maybe on a TV show, maybe to the whole TV industry. My prediction is that, uh, well, I'm starting. I just started. I already said it. In 2023, my positive prediction, because we're going to go positive, negative, and a little out of left field. Uh, my, my positive prediction is that Zaz is going to make his pitch to Hollywood that this is this is for you. This is so that we all make more money down the road. Residuals are back, baby. Yeah, it's an exciting time. I think that that's very accurate. 
my my positive prediction you you touched on briefly and i think it's a related thing but i think um potentially after a strike but after some renegotiating coming in the coming year i think that uh the era of residuals is coming back no more of these horrible netflix contracts where uh you never find out how your show is doing and you uh don't make any money on it except for these you know uh, big deals at the beginning. Um, I think that this is probably for the best for the whole industry in the long run. And I'm really hoping that that's the case with all these streamers now moving to ad supported tiers, they're going to have to give their creators information on how their shows are actually doing and what audiences they're reaching. Yeah, I think that that is uh, all true. All the trends are pointing in the same direction. But that does bring me to my negative prediction, which is that uh, there's a a headline you sent me. It's in the show notes. The New York Times declares the golden age of streaming is over. And you know what? Yeah, that's my prediction, is that what we're going to see is a focus on quality over quantity, uh, which is a shift for streaming. And I think we're going to see less niche experiments. And that's the downside, is right mm-hmm. now the anything goes attitude has really meant, well, we can green light something that we don't really know what the audience is because the audience, we're going to find it or they're going to find us. And then we're going to have this captive audience. But we don't know who it is yet or we don't know how big it is yet. But th- that's not going to uh, be enough to justify green lighting a project anymore. I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. I do think when you say quality over quantity, though, what they mean by quality is quantity of viewers. Mm -hmm. And so it might not actually be actual quality of content. What they mean is MILF Manor coming to the Discovery app of your choice soon. Jack Donaghy vinegated once again. Uh, And we are not just misremembering MILF Island from 30 Rock. It's just MILF Manor coming soon to actual television. It's obviously very tempting to read a lot into the existence of MILF Manor. But I I do think it calls to the fact that everything old is sort of new again. Sure. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, the older women on MILF Manor are um, very (laughs) pleased to hear you say that, In more ways than one. Yes, it's so true. I was referring to business models. But you know what? I'm also referring to the beautiful ladies of MILF Manor. So there is um, a trailer, like a a teaser trailer that's come out for MILF Manor in which um, the uh, MILFs are getting settled and they're talking about how the show is going to bring on some younger men for them to meet. And uh, there's a twist and they don't say what it is, but you see uh, the MILFs seem uh, slightly um, troubled uh, by by when they meet these men, and it must be that it's their sons, right? That's it the twist. Oh my god! Otherwise, the twist because we never see the men's faces. Otherwise, the twist is like all the men are horribly disfigured, which is a less entertaining concept for a show. I, I think it has to be that they're they're the sons. The only morally correct choice, the only ethical choice, really, is that it's their sons. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I wish that could be our out-of-left-field prediction, that there's going to be a MILF manor, but that they, they beat us to it. So uh, what, 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 how crazy can your predictions get, Diane? That's true. That's true. Um, my negative prediction for the yes. year is that there's going to be massive job losses, like more than we've seen already, and that uh, 
the creative industry is going to go through a, a, re a really hard tightening. I know it's already happening, but I think that uh, 2023 is going to be a hard year. Yeah, I agree. And not just because um, it uh, dovetails perfectly with my negative prediction. So we both win that one. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that means a lot of people lose too. Uh, but again, it's about me winning uh, right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do we do joke about these things on the show a lot, you know, uh, shows getting canceled and stuff. But we both also, you know, feel for everyone affected by these cuts, you know, like CNN plus maybe a punchline, but also people had lost their jobs so yeah we'll keep tracking and reporting on it thinking uh you know positive thoughts for everyone i 100 percent agree uh but i i do not want just positive thoughts i want bonkers thoughts i want reality uh -huh. bending thoughts i want a a prediction so far out of left field it hits me in the back of the head kind of like the zapruder film uh episode of seinfeld with the loogie you know what i'm talking about i do i know yeah. exactly what you're talking about so what's your prediction? Should I go first? Do you want to oh, go? Oh, come on. Go first. Go first. Let me go second on this one. Okay. It might not be as out there as you were hoping, but my this is a wishful thinking on my part. But in the past few years, we've seen uh, a trend in comedy toward um, sweet, heartwarming, I would say toothless. I'm not a huge fan of it. I think that um, Schitt's Creek is an example of a show that did this very well. And there have been um, other shows that have done it. And I think significantly less well, even though some of those shows may be quite successful. So um, my hope, my out of left field thing is that we're going to move from sweet comedy to raunchy comedy. Ooh, that raunchy. People, yeah, that people are going to say, I have had <laughs> enough. We're in a recession. Um, I want to watch Bupkis. I, I don't know if Bupkis itself will be a hit, but you know, that kind of thing where it's just a little bit, uh, a little edgier. All right, I'm here for that. I want that. I thought you were going to mm -hmm. say dark and gritty comedy, but no. No, I think we did that before yeah, we did. too. We did. No, I, it's... I, I think I think it's raunchy. Uh, honestly, we're moving into like a Jennifer Coolidge era. That's the vibe. Please. Happy to. Happy to. Well, okay, then I will give a, a out-of-left-field business prediction. I don't really know if I believe this, but I am going to go for it. I am going to say Comcast begs Disney to sell them Hulu, and Iger says yes. <gasps> Ooh, will that happen? They... I don't know. Yeah, why would they do that? I don't know. Yeah, That's why... why it's out of left field. I'm not saying it makes sense, but I do think Comcast would do anything to get it. They would sell their kidneys. Every employee on Saturday Night Live would be forced to sell a kidney. Lorne would have to sell a kidney. They would make it happen if they could get Hulu and save themselves from the peacock of their own making. How much do you think someone like Kenan Thompson's kidneys goes for? Oh, a man. A pretty penny. Yeah, I, I think that that is something that Comcast would certainly want. I'm not sure why Disney would want that in the sense that Hulu makes money, so I don't see why they'd want to sell it. But um, perhaps, you know, That's, it could I'm, happen. I'm throwing it out there. As long as Hulu is in good hands, I'm not sure that I care whose hands it's in. Right. Honestly, maybe the reason I'm wishing this, I'm, I'm wishing this into the world, is because I'm afraid that the alternative, the more likely scenario, is that Disney shutters Hulu and folds it all into Disney Plus, and Hulu, the the somehow the survivor, the cockroach of the nuclear streaming wars, uh, Hulu finally loses its life. And I don't want to see that. I want to live in a world with Hulu, the Franken service that. Could 
could. And I know that Comcast is so desperate and so thirsty for streaming success that they would kill their own Peacock. They would take Peacock out back to the woodshed and they would go all in on Hulu if they could have it because they're like, well, at least people like Hulu. Chris, I so hope that your prediction is correct. Me too. And you know, listener, if you have your own predictions for the new year, you should email them to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We'll talk about them in the new year. But you know what we're going to talk about right now, Diane? Benoit Blanc knows. (gasps) We may not know, but Benoit does because it's time for our review of Glass Onion. Yes, we are uh, talking about our first movie, our first streaming movie. We are here to review Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. But before we get to that, I'm going to calm you right now, dear listener. We know if you're listening to this episode, uh, as soon as it drops, the movie is not on Netflix yet. So you have probably not yet seen Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out. And so we're going to approach this a little differently. We're going to start by talking about uh, the strategy and, and why Netflix released this in theaters, which is how Diane and I got to see it sooner than you, apparently, uh, dear listener. But uh, we're then going to do a spoiler light review so that if you're excited about it, but you want to get our opinions or you didn't see Knives Out 1 and you're curious if you'll enjoy Knives Out 2, great, great. We're going to do that this episode. And then next week in your feed, in in just like a little um, stocking stuffer, we're going to drop our feelings about the big twists and the mystery and the solution at the end. So don't worry, we are not going to give away the ending of Knives Out, or rather Glass Onion, colon, a Knives Out mystery, uh, in this episode. Uh, This is here for us to talk about, one, how much I think we liked it, because I liked it. Did you like it, Diane? Yeah, it's fun. Okay, I knew that answer, but I, I wanted to give you the chance there. Uh, more importantly, we're going to start with what What was this strategy? Knives Out in theaters for one week. Why? Diane, why? So Reed Hastings spoke with Variety. Here's an article we'll drop in the show notes for you. Um, and he had some interesting quotes about this strategy. Uh, he said that it was a, quote, promotional tactic to build buzz and drive subscriber signups. Basically, they want more people paying for Netflix. Um, And he also said that the company would consider doing similar releases, the sort of limited release uh, in the future. But this quote uh, really stuck out to me. We're not trying to build a theatrical business. We are trying to break through the noise. Mm. We are mm. not trying to build a theatrical business. Many people might have thought, ooh, why, why not have all these movies go into the movie theaters as well? Because in theory, if I'm already paying for Netflix and I go pay for a ticket to Glass Onion in theaters, I have given Netflix twice the money, essentially. More money for Netflix, right? Uh, but that's not Netflix's core business. And so I think there's two arguments that Reed is kind of making here. One he's making explicitly and then one he's just hinting at but I think is equally important. So what what he's saying on the surface is our core business is subscribers and we want to have all the subscribers and if we put every movie in theaters we will not have as many subscribers because some people who just want to see those big movies that people are talking about will just go and see them in the theaters and they will not subscribe to Netflix on top of that because they've already seen the big movie everyone's talking about 
Uh, and they're getting more of those big movies that everyone's talking about. Obviously, Glass Onion, but uh, this time last year, uh, Don't Look Up was a huge movie that everyone was talking about. Uh, and in fact, we have another link in the show notes that will include the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Netflix is actually expanding a pilot program they designed uh, about a year ago to get audience feedback on titles before they release them. And in the case of Don't Look Up, apparently audiences told Netflix it's too depressing. And so they retooled it and remarketed it uh, before releasing it to be funnier and to emphasize the comedy more. And in a way, I think that must have worked because people, uh, the, the discourse around Don't Look Up, while not everyone loved it, the discourse was widespread. People were watching it as a comedy. And if it had been, you know, if the discourse had been, this is a depressing movie about climate change, a depressing allegory about climate change, I do not think it would have had the buzz that it had. And so that that is a major concern for Netflix is we want people to talk about how much you have to watch this thing on Netflix, not how much you have to see this thing, but how much you have to watch this thing on Netflix. And how can we optimize the content to be as buzzworthy as possible to draw you in so you subscribe and then feed that flywheel and you buzz about the next thing and the next thing and you stay subscribed to Netflix and then, ooh, you have too many people subscribed to your account so you have to upgrade to a more expensive plan that allows more simultaneous streams and ooh, now we're cracking down on those passwords so your cousin has to get their own account and that's how they can continue to make money and grow subscribers. It all relies on the streaming subscription being the destination, not the individual titles. I agree with that take, and I, I think that's a, a helpful way of looking at it. At the same time, one thing I'm seeing from this is that Netflix has shown that it is um, willing to expand its business model and break the rules that it has set for itself. Netflix said we will not do advertising, and now Netflix has rolled out an advertising tier. Netflix you know, is now saying we will not do a big theatrical push, uh, but this was pretty successful, and I'm just not sure that they're going to stick to their guns on that forever going forward. And I think that that's smart. Like uh, being a smart business is, you know, responding to what's ahead of you and not just, you know, uh, drawing some line in the sand for no reason. So while I, I, while I think that you're right, that what they really want out of this is subscriber growth, I don't think Hastings is lying about that. I do think we could see a moment in the future where they pivot on this theatrical strategy. The only reason I don't think they will is just because theatrical movies are are struggling across the board. That's true. They are. And and in a way that may have given Netflix some leverage in getting Glass Onion into major theaters. This as the Variety uh, article points out was the first Netflix movie to be in AMC and Regal which uh, I didn't know. I saw it at an AMC theater, and honestly, in my neighborhood, all of the closest theaters are AMC, and if Glass Onion had not been in AMC theaters, I may not have seen Glass Onion in theaters. And uh, part of this gets to that, you know, Reed is kind of standoffish against the theater industry in that statement. And it is known in the industry that, you know, the the theaters themselves, the chains, don't love Netflix because Netflix is so 
uh, non-committal about a theatrical strategy. And so another thing that uh, Variety points out here is Netflix actually sweetened the deal for the theater chains and offered them a much larger revenue share on the ticket sales than they normally would. So uh, in another sense, this didn't make as much money for Netflix as it could have. And again, Reed openly said it wasn't to make more money. It was to market the service more. And I will say there is a funny moment of sitting in that that theater seat. The lights dim and the first thing you see is the giant Netflix rainbow N coming in. And you think, right, I'm watching a Netflix movie. I'm having a Netflix experience right now. There was a powerful branding moment around that. There was. And for me, that was my first time seeing a Netflix movie in a theater. Same, same. Uh, But this gets me... The Irishman. This gets me to what what I think is... um, the other implied reason that they they don't want to uh, have people expect their movies in theaters. And that's because uh, there's a risk associated with putting the movie out in theaters before it goes on streaming. Uh, and that risk is what if it gets bad reviews? What if it's a flop? What if you put The Gray Man in theaters, but nobody likes it enough to say good things about going to see it in the theaters? Versus what if you put The Gray Man straight on Netflix and everybody watches it the first weekend because they're at home and they're looking for something to watch on Friday night? You know, there's the, 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 the risk of going straight to your core product is way lower because the audience is already there. Whereas if you put it in theaters, you have to convince an audience that they want to plan a trip to the movie theaters, pay additional money for the ticket. And of course, if they know it's going to be on Netflix in a few months or a few weeks in the case of Glass Onion, you have to have that conversation with yourself that, you know, is it worth $20 to go see it even if it's going to be free free in quotation marks because you are paying Netflix uh, in three weeks. Another part of that too is if you have only a week to see it and you are really like limiting that time, the people who go to see it are going to be people who think they're really going to like it. So for something like Glass Onion, if you already saw Knives Out and loved it and love Ryan Johnson movies, it's, you know, you're, the people who are going to come see it are not the same people who would see it if they had a whole month or a whole summer to decide whether or not they wanted to go. You know, you're like s- selecting your audience in a way as well. Yeah, you're making sure your audience will be the most enthusiastic people, most likely to say the best things about it. And you're you're also ensuring that those people, again, your biggest promoters, essentially, are most motivated to go see it because the time is limited. You create artificial scarcity this way. I know that if I had three weeks to go see uh, Glass Onion, I would have procrastinated multiple times. That is my nature. But if you tell me I only have one week over the Thanksgiving holiday to see glass onion i'm busy i got stuff going on but i really want to see that movie and if i know my last opportunity to see it is like tuesday november 30th well i'm gonna make sure i'm in that amc at 4 p.m on monday november 29th with the elderly of the upper west side because i want to see that movie and i'm so glad that i saw it in theaters though I really think it enhanced the experience. Yeah, me too. It made a, it, it in a way also made the argument for more of these theatrical releases because as good as my you know many listen listen my argument against movies in some way is TVs are so good now you have a theatrical experience in your home but as good as that is 
there was something more enthralling about seeing it in the cinema, sitting in that dark room, having my attention fully focused on the big screen in front of me. It was an AMC, so I did get to experience the Nicole Kidman, the magic of the stories advertising before the movie started. And and it is correct, though. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, I think that the the qualitative difference for me between watching a movie at home on streaming and watching a movie in the theater is within myself that it's the way that I give it attention is so different when I'm home. Um, And so for certain movies that I want to see, I want that. And also for something like this, where there are twists and turns, where there are jokes, that is a different communal experience than watching it at home. Um, But, you know, uh, sometimes Netflix can be a communal experience. And I think they understand that it's a communal experience, especially around the holidays, which is part of the reason that they make the days before Thanksgiving and Christmas big release dates for their big movies because they want it to be something that you're going to watch with your family. Yeah, and I also think the holiday timing here is really smart because I will go home for Christmas and when on you know the 23rd or the morning of the 25th when we're looking for something to do that's low key the first thing I am going to suggest is hey mom and dad let's turn on Glass Onion I've seen it and I would love to see it again and I I I can you know bring that experience bring that again extra free marketing uh along for the ride. Yep. I will almost certainly do that. That's the genius there. That's the genius of this uh, hybrid release strategy. Uh, And, you know, uh, listener, if you would like to see more Netflix movies in theaters, uh, tell us why. Email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We would love to know your thoughts. Uh, But now we are going to shift gears and share our thoughts about this movie. And this is a light spoiler warning. So if you truly want to go into Glass Onion completely blind, uh, we love you for that. We love you so much. And we respect Respect. you. Yes, we respect you enough to say, we trust that you'll pause right here and come back to this episode after you've watched Glass Onion. We know you're not leaving us for good. You're You're just taking a pause. And this has been your opportunity to reach into your pocket and take out your phone and take that pause. You've had enough time to do that. And so now we are going to tell you a little bit about what happens in Glass Onion. And again, we are not going to give away the big twists because it is a mystery and it is a really good, funny mystery. So we're going to save that for our next episode. And here we're going to talk about what you can expect and uh, just our general impressions. And so, you know, uh, I'm going to start, Diane. Did you come into this really excited? Because I loved the original Knives Out. And admittedly, there, you know, this is a sequel, but it is a franchise in many ways. And only Benoit Blanc returns. We, we really are just following now a whole new mystery, a whole new caper, but with the same detective at the core. But I love that setup. And so I was super excited to see where they take it. Kind of like Murder, She Wrote, but goes to the movies. Yeah, um, I, I love a murder mystery. So this is certainly my genre. I don't think it's the smartest murder mystery. Um, I don't think it's the funniest comedy, but I think it's kind of smart and pretty funny. And it's something that you can watch with everyone, which is so nice. Um, So I was excited. I was like going into it being like, oh, I hope this is fun. And on that, it really delivered. 
Absolutely. It is a, such a fun ride to go on. And the twists and the way it folds back on itself to reveal the mystery and reveal the solution to the mystery is extremely satisfying in the moment, even if it's not the smartest solution, let's say. And that's okay, because it's how the, the story balances all of those elements. It's funny, it's witty, it's a little pointed and a little sharp, but not too sharp that you couldn't watch it with your conservative uncle you know what i mean yeah i actually think it it's it's fake satire i think it pretends to be satire of a certain culture and maybe it takes one or two punches up but uh pretty light on those it absolutely um glorifies the same celebrity culture it like seems to be critiquing um but just by the merits of what it is it's a star-studded cast and they're all great in it. It's a really good fun yeah, cast. I, I was just thinking, you know, me and my uncle, let's say, we would be laughing at Dave Bautista for different reasons. Dave Bautista's character is uh, wearing often like a, a leather Speedo with a gun holster over his crotch with a pistol in it at all times, in the pool, no less. And, and it's as a sight gag hilarious and as a character choice i find it very funny but for extremely different reasons than some other people would find it very funny to me it's a it's a parody a send-up of that kind of personality he's kind of an alex jones type a a cut rate alex jones type but like a joe rogan too yeah absolutely absolutely and to me it's lampooning those people but to somebody else it's actually just a, a funny take on that and it's actually not satire at all. It is kind of lampooning those people, but at the same time, Dave Bautista's character is pretty lovable. Uh, He's not without redeeming qualities. And I think that, like, the fact that, like, you can laugh at him a little, but really he's not that bad, it, it... to me, it's it's not pointed satire at all. It's It's fake satire. That's why I would call it fake satire. He is much less of a bad person than the people who he is supposed to be um, a parody of. Yeah, he's kind of supposed to be salt of the earth, you know, which mm-hmm. which you could make the flip argument that that uh, humanizes despicable people in a really disgusting way. And yet mm-hmm. that's not the point of this. The, the fact that it is this kind of toothless satire is the correct choice for the genre, I think. And, and I would say... While your face disagrees with me, I would make my argument that it it has just enough teeth. It is ultimately uh, sticking it to, punching up to the right people at the right moments. And it doesn't punch up as often as you might hope or want. But the choices it makes on who it punches up to and ultimately the message it delivers at the end amongst the cast of people who are rich and despicable in many ways, but at the same time, you know, they are the characters you're rooting for in many of the scenes. And so it finds a way to thread that needle of, we're gonna, you know, make sure that you feel like some justice was served, but we're not here to, you know, uh, break the system, to put it one way that would be uh, in-universe for the movie. To me... And I had this issue with the first Knives Out, too, because that one also contains some really light version of satire. Um, Maybe that one was slightly more successful with it than this is. I'd almost just rather they didn't include that because it isn't 
successful satire and because I feel like what it does is it like makes you feel good about watching it and it's like I don't know I uh, do we need to pat ourselves on the back or can we just w watch a fun movie uh it, it felt a little bit cringe for me for me but um I I know that it will satisfy some people so that's great. When you put it that way, it makes me think of watching it with my mom, who is somebody who politically I get along with very well. So we would laugh at some of the same jokes. She is not going to find the same humor in certain satire that I would, but, but we would align on many targets of satire, let's say. But she would want to have a warm, happy feeling at the end. And part of the strength of this as being a cross-generational movie, something that you can take home for the holidays, is that it does ultimately leave you feeling warm at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's it true does. That's true of the first Knives Out as well. That is baked into the formula of the series. Yeah, I just wish sometimes then they wouldn't try to tackle issues of like race and gender in America if it's going to be... but. Only so much as so that people feel like great at the end. I don't know. No, there's, there's I truth could do to without that too. That, I think that's a really great point. And that's a really great uh, critique of the style of this, this comedy, really. Because ultimately, that's, that's a choice they've made that's content, but also just genre, style, feeling, vibe, whatever you want to call it. I think it's Ryan Johnson. Absolutely. I mean, it's across his films. Yeah, yeah. That's Last Jedi in, in many ways, actually. Yeah. But I think maybe we should back up for a second and uh, set up just the story. Because ultimately, what is this genre? It's a puzzle. The, the, it's a puzzle genre. The whole movie is yeah. a funny puzzle. It's a wordle, uh, but on screen. Ryan Johnson's wordle is an, an adaptation I would go see in the theaters. And I have to bring it up because recently Netflix uh, admitted that they were very angry they did not buy wordle because they are trying to break into gaming, which is a whole separate conversation. But I love they were really angry they didn't get wordle because it would have because it is something you come back to every day, which builds into that Netflix flywheel and the value of the subscription so smartly. So I'm just saying, Reed, if you're listening, you did miss the boat on having Wordle the game, but you have not missed the boat on optioning Wordle the motion picture as written and directed by Ryan Johnson. Wordle the franchise. Or just Wordle a Knives Out mystery. It would work. It would work. Because ultimately, the, the, the genre is a puzzle, and the movie opens with a deliciously satisfying kind of 10-minute montage of the main characters receiving a puzzle and having to solve it over the phone with each other. And that puzzle reveals an invitation to this murder mystery on a rich man's island. And that is where Benoit Blanc enters the picture as somebody investigating the murder mystery that may or may not be a murder mystery party and may or may not be an actual murder that is going to happen. And that is the setup, essentially, of the movie. Does, that, mm -hmm. that, that's it, isn't it? It's actually pretty simple. It is simple. Uh, this is the part that is so successful for me. I think that it is such a fun game. It's so fun and funny. I want to figure out what's happening next. And I'm really, like, I find myself scanning the screen during these movies for little visual clues or, like, picking up on weird things the characters say and think, oh, so-and-so mentioned, you know, I'm not going to say it. Uh, but uh, uh -huh. so-and-so mentioned this. Maybe it'll be relevant later. I'm not going to say it because it was. 
but you exactly. know. Exactly. And, and it's part of the reason I enjoyed seeing it in theaters because I am uh, habitually guilty of multi-screen uh, entertainment at home. Mm-hmm. I will put things on and I, I will put things on that I love and care about and want to pay attention to and then I will pick up my phone and I will do two things at once and then I will do three things at once and then maybe I missed what was going on and I'll rewind you know two minutes on the screen to catch up but you know uh, Knives Out and Glass Onion are densely packed they are intricately designed Ryan Johnson both writes and directs and it shows because every scene you feel like there are easter eggs everywhere and I need to pay really close attention so I can catch all of them because some of them are funny and some of them are clues and some of them are both Yeah. It's also one of those parts of the movie that's really fun afterwards to see it with people as a social thing and talk about like, when did you pick up on this? And like, oh, wait, but does this make sense? And then you walk a little and you're like, yes, this is why they did that. Actually, you know, it's one of those, the fun of the movie continues after the movie, which I think is part of the reason it could potentially be a successful franchise. I think that's a good point. We're going to talk about its franchise possibilities mm-hmm. in a moment. We hinted at this in a previous episode, but I, I want to emphasize that that rewatchability, that that just the sheer fact that I am excited to watch it again so that I can now identify more of the Easter eggs that were revealed to me as the mystery was solved at the end of the movie. This classic Knives Out fashion, once you find out what the solution was, you realize there were so many clues along the way, some of which you caught, many of which I did not catch, personally and so now I'm excited to rewatch it to see if I can catch them on, on a second viewing and I also think it is really helpful to me personally that there are going to be several weeks between that first viewing and that second viewing and I think that's on purpose for a lot of reasons part of the strategy that we already talked about is create that artificial scarcity but also if it is going to come to Netflix immediately after it leaves theaters like the week after it leaves theaters that reduces my uh, interest in seeing it in theaters because it's coming sooner and it reduces my interest in rewatching it with friends who might have waited to watch it when it drops on Netflix but if you give it the right amount of time you give it like three weeks four weeks between when I saw it and when it hits Netflix I am not just ready for a reviewing but I'm eager for a reviewing because I've forgotten some of the details and I'm now ready to kind of discover them again yeah I think I think that's absolutely right I um will definitely be re-watching it around the holidays and probably with others yeah me, me too and uh, I have to say, again, we don't want to give too much away here, so we're going to keep this kind of short and sweet. But it ultimately succeeds at what it sets out to do, and that leads us to the question of, is this the beginning of a hit franchise? Because as we talked about in our uh, year-end superlative spectacular, uh, this was my franchise of the year. And admittedly, there's some recency bias there. I only just saw the movie, but I thought, uh, walking out of it, yeah, this they've nailed the formula of this franchise, and Netflix... Uh, which spent a ton of money acquiring Knives Out and uh, signing Ryan Johnson to direct and write more of them, and Daniel Craig to be Benoit Blanc. This was a big investment, a lot of money, and they're making many concessions. Many people have said that a big part of the reason it's in movie theaters is because Ryan Johnson demands that it be in movie theaters at least for a week. And all of that is to say Netflix is willing to make exceptions to many of the rules that they have. And as you've pointed out, they often do make exceptions to the rules they have, but they only do it for good reason. And this was one where they took a big swing, and I 
think this worked. And they do not have a great history of inventing new franchises. Even the hits that they have, like Stranger Things, they hinted at making a franchise with Eleven and the other numbered children. And that that possibility was not well received and, and did not go forward. Uh, I think of Jupiter Ascending, I think it was, their attempt to invent a superhero franchise, completely flopped. Uh, but here... Partly because I think it's a movie franchise where there's more time between the releases and each one has more buzz focused on it specifically. I think they've got, a, I think they finally nailed the formula. I think that a keyword here is formula. It's just quite formulaic between the two films. And it has enough twists to still be a fun watch. I'm just not sure how many of these you could keep making that would not decline in quality and decline in quality pretty quickly and maybe i'll keep watching them uh i probably would you know it reminds me of um the sort of love actually formula that popped up where you get like a really big um star-studded ensemble cast but they only each need to be in for a couple days because you're doing like you know uh just a like montage type storytelling you're spending a ton basically on your cast. And then they tried to recreate that over and over. And just each one was worse than the last. For me, this was a little less good than Knives Out. It was fun still, but it was not as clever. It was not as sharp and interesting. Um, so I think I, I think we'll see it decline. But I hope I'm wrong because this was fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope you're wrong, too, but for good reason. I agree that you're you're making the right call on what the risk here is. And, and my optimism comes from the fact that, one, it's a movie, not a series. And if it was a series, like, I, what you described just made me think of the BBC's Sherlock, which, uh, admittedly, being a BBC series, really short seasons, but even then, after a couple seasons of that Sherlock with, with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, excellent people, great out-of-the-box uh, stories in the first season, but each subsequent season was really diminishing returns to the point where by the time the last season of that aired, I, I, I don't really want them to bring it back. I am done with it. And I think that is the argument that you're hinting at, uh, if you don't mind me saying, is that they could fall into a really similar trap because those Sherlock mysteries are equally puzzle-based stories that are pretty formulaic and the twists become less exciting upon repetition or more ridiculous and then the show feels like it's jumped the shark. And I think the risk for Knives Out is it could go in either direction. They could either become too uh, repetitive or in an effort to avoid that trap, they could completely jump the shark. And there, there are some arguments you might make that this movie did jump the shark in some moments. And we will discuss that in our next episode, which is a full-blown spoiler cast about some of the twists and turns the story made. So I will end my thought there, except to say I, I could see it going either direction, but it is the most optimistic I've felt about a Netflix franchise in a long time. That's that's fair. I uh, yeah. I, I I really really want you to be right. Mm, I want me to be right too for so many reasons. Mostly because I like being right, but also because this was a fun movie. And uh, it, listener, if you get a chance to watch Knives Out, write to us. We'll talk about it. Uh, we'll read your comment on a future episode. Podcast at streamageddon.com is how you can do that. Uh, but for now, we'll leave this as spoiler free as we could. And I have to say, if you're worried we spoiled something. You're no. looking too closely for the Easter eggs. They're not there in this episode. We did good. 
and you are ready, listener, to watch uh, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, and then listen to our next episode where we uh, unpack all of those twists. Uh, until then, Diane, this is the holidays. Uh, are you going to have a happy one? What are you going to keep doing? I'm going to keep streaming. I think that's a great idea. Me too. The spit then splashed off the wrist, pauses in midair, mind you, (laughs) makes a left turn and lands on Newman's left thigh. That is one magic loogie.